Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. So welcome to episode 30 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. I'm John Walsh, a trustee and filmmaker of the Foundation, and I'm joined by our collections manager, Connor Heaney. Hello, Connor. Hello, John. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm very excited about episode 30 because we have some real Christmas treats for Harryhausen fans worldwide in part five of our musical retrospective. Yes. So this is Clash of the Titans. Now, we've left this till last because it was Ray's last film. It wasn't intended to be, for those of you who know Ray's filmography but it was his last film it was his biggest film it was his most expensive film and it was his most successful film certainly financially and in terms of footfall of people who saw it in cinemas but it wasn't the easiest of the films to make by uh, by far and the journey of the film the story the special effects we've talked about before and no doubt we'll talk about again but this time as you rightly said Connor it's about the music And of course the music, well, it's a spectacular score that we know and love today, but that wasn't the full story, was it? No, there are some uh, some surprises, I suppose, in store for for fans of Clash of the Titans in terms of the history of the music and uh, some some of the secrets that have been unveiled during our research into Ray's archive. Because the, the classic score, and it is a classic undoubtedly, the classic score by Lawrence Rosenthal was not the original planned composer for the the movie. And uh, yes, we, we can talk about this a little just now, John, but it was originally planned to have John Barry create the soundtrack for Clash of the Titans, the legendary composer. Yes, that's right. And... You know, with all these things, you know, people discuss in creative meetings who's going to be in a film, who's going to be involved in the creative process, directors, writers come and go. And it's not uncommon to have conversations with the big composers of the day. And of course, John Barry was right at the top of the list of if you've got a big film to make and you want a big heroic score, then John Barry is your man. And, uh, you know, for those people who know John Barry and his work, they'll know him for, of course, the... uh, the James Bond films, he's won Oscars for uh, Out of Africa. One of my favourite scores is Chaplin. Of course, Dances with Wolves, Body Heat, The Lion in Winter, Midnight Cowboy. You know, quite iconic films. And of course, the James Bond series, he scored more films and created more songs than any other composer working in the Bond franchise. So the idea that he was going to be involved with Clash of the Titans seems like a really perfect fit, doesn't it, Connor? Yes, and I think uh, this is the reason why John Barry is such a household name is because of those James Bond films. I think everybody in the world would recognise them and uh, would certainly recognise his name from the start of those classic films in the in the 1960s and 1970s. So 
of course he, he would be probably top of the list going into the the kind of the background of the film uh, Clash of the Titans of course it had a far larger budget than any of Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer's previous productions and so I imagine that one of the first things they thought about was wow we have a little bit more money this time who should we get to do the score and of course I'm sure Barry's name was one of the the first that, that came to mind. I think they were they were thinking John Williams, they were thinking Jerry Goldsmith. They were thinking they had a big budget for the first time. But interestingly, unlike uh, most conversations, they don't it turn into a sort of a creative outlet. And as part of the research for Harryhausen The Lost Movies, which was released earlier this year in September, um, we made a, a discovery in the Harryhausen archives, a tape, a classic uh, compact cassette sort of thing that you would have in your home hi-fi systems or in your car stereos uh, a tape as far as we understand it the only one in existence with music a sample demo from John Barry himself that was presented to Ray and Charles Schneer and up until this point we think there's probably only about five people who've ever heard it and we're gonna we're gonna put that right today by playing you some excerpts from the uh, half dozen or so tracks that are actually on that cassette yeah that was I mean if you if you want to talk about uh, highlights in working with the Harryhausen collection, that's got to be up there for me because I'd heard, I think a couple of people, I think our good friend Mike Hankin had mentioned that uh, he thought Ray still would have had a copy of this tape of the unreleased John Barry demo. Um, and so, you know, we, we'd always suspected it was within the collection somewhere. But when I was, as I said, I was helping with the research for the Lost Movies book, I came I came across this blank tape. The The inside booklet had some very interesting text. It said, uh, Heroic 1, Heroic 2, Andromeda, Perseus growing up. And of course, uh, alarm bells started ringing and I, I, I thought this could have been something very special. And sure enough, written on the cassette itself, John Barry... 820 1980s. So 1980s when it was recorded and I was the first person to, to hear that soundtrack in some well, 35 to 40 years. So a spine-tingling moment. And I know, John, that you were very excited when I sent that over to you to listen to as well. I was because I'm a big fan of John Barry. I have almost everything he's recorded and uh, I have some of his unreleased scores as well. So it really is interesting to hear what he was doing at the time and, and to put it into some kind of context... In 1976, he scored for Dino De Laurentiis, King Kong, the epic remake with Jessica Lange and Jeff Bridges. And then in 1979, The Black Hole for Walt Disney. So, you know, a major fantasy monster movie with King Kong and then a major Star Wars-like epic for Disney, as was intended, with The Black Hole. So um, let's have a listen to Heroic One. Um, We'll just hear a, a few moments of that. obviously is cassette quality I think that sounds pretty good and it certainly sounds like John Barry and uh, if we now have a listen to the main title theme from King Kong from 1976 
you can kind of get a sense of the rhythm and the uh, and the house style of John Barry. Are you a fan of King Kong '76, Connor? Um, I I like it. I don't I don't know if I like it as much as, as you do, John. I know you're a big fan of that film. I do enjoy uh, particularly the first half of the film. Um, it's obviously very very different to the uh, the 1933 original, and there's some some lovely effects in there. And of course, the 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 score uh, is again very different to, to Max Steiner's original and I guess it had to be it had to be quite different and so yes uh, you can definitely hear John Barry's style within that soundtrack and within the, the the demo tape that we have here and I know that that was one of your first comments when I when I sent you over the uh, the digitized file from this cassette you said first of all it definitely sounds like John Barry but secondly I think you were quite surprised by the uh, the amount of the level of detail in this demo recording, the amount of different instruments that were involved. I was, because often a demo recording might only be on a piano or only on an electronic keyboard. Um, so that that was fascinating. But to hear Heroic One, which was probably the title track as suggested for Clash of the Titans, and King Kong main title, they're quite lyrical. Um, they are quite dramatic, but they're very different from what the film ended up with, which was, I think, the right decision um, with Lawrence Rosenthal. Now, if we go straight into the prologue and main title, we remind ourselves, although we heard it at the front of this programme, let's remind ourselves of, of what was achieved.
So there you go, we're all familiar with that sound and that feeling and that momentum as well. So as much as it pains me to say it, it was the right decision if it was based simply on the demo track from, from uh, John Barry that they went with, uh, with Lawrence Rosenthal. And I know that Lawrence was suggested to the team by John Williams because uh, Charles Schneer was interested in, in guessing John Williams as well, who had great success with Superman, Star Wars, Jaws and Close Encounters at the time. And Lawrence was was a suggestion made by uh, John Williams, um, not just because Williams knew Rosenthal, but because he felt he was the right fit for the project. And hearing those tracks, Connor, you know, Heroic, King Kong, and then, if you like, the rightful theme to Clash of the Titans, it seems like it was the right decision, don't you think? Yeah, I would I would say so. I think if you listen to those John Barry tracks there, and you have to be fair, you have to remember that these uh, recordings we have are, are a demo and not the finished score, but the, the tracks there that we've got are, I suppose, a little subdued, a little understated, a little low-key in comparison to uh, Rosenthal's eventual score. And I think given the budget for Clash of the Titans, given how many of race creatures were in that film, there was probably more animation in Clash of the Titans than uh, several of Ray's films put together uh, before before 1980. Uh, and I suppose given the ambition of, of Charles Schneer and, and Ray Harryhausen for this for this picture with its budget, with the, the bigger reach in marketing and so forth, that they, I suppose they really felt they wanted to do something uh, big and something which called back to the, the classic soundtracks of, of, of Bernard Herrmann and, and earlier scores. Uh, and... Yes, I suppose if you want to be crude, they really want to, to throw the kitchen sink at it and do something really kind of varied and incredible. So that, that that's my, my personal opinion. I, I do think uh, that the, the right choice was made, but that's not to disparage John Barry in any way. And it's, it's really fascinating to, to ponder how different the tone of the film could have been if his soundtrack had been chosen and used. Indeed. Now, what we're going to do next is have a, a chat to a very special guest We've tracked down Adrian Brett, who's the very accomplished flute player, who was the, um, the the go-to person of choice for many of the major film composers on the planet at the time, and he was asked to come in and provide a voice to Bubo the Owl on Clash of the Titans. And I caught up with Adrian this week, and uh, I kicked off by asking him how he got on working on Clash of the Titans. <laughs> Golden. I'd like to ask you, I've got three particular questions to ask you. The first one is this, and you might not know this, but um, did you know that the composer John Barry was the first choice to work on the score for Clash of the Tysons? Well, I didn't know that, but I knew John Barry very well. And it might possibly be that it, that it, that, that through him, um, I, 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 I might have, um, become involved, um, because, um, I've worked on a number of films with John, particularly, uh, the James Bond films. And they, you, as you know, the Bond films are often set in different countries and he would phone me up and just tell me what the country was because he knew that I could show up in the studio with with a, an ethnic flute from the particular country and be able to add some local colour. So it could have been it could have been 
you know, John, who was the composer? Was it Roy Bird? Uh, no, it was Lawrence Rosenthal in the end. It, oh, Lawrence Rosenthal. Yes. Ah, oh, well, then that's <laughs> then 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 that's how I got it because I worked with him. I worked with Larry on quite a number of films, um, and he knew that that I had all of these. Um, I've, you see, I, you're telling me something that I don't know because I didn't know how it was that I actually got this this particular job, as it were, um, because normally um, freelance musicians, uh, they're engaged by what we call a fixer, you know, a contractor. And a contractor's job is to know, you know, which which musicians to employ, you know, either in an orchestra or a group or whether, and and especially um, those that have got unusual skills. And, and of course, I fell into that. Although I was a regular orchestral flute player, you know, and I went in and did symphonic things and opera and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I I had this huge collection of ethnic flutes which I specialised in, and so that's how I knew John Barry and knew Larry Rosenthal. So, Well, it's interesting, Adrian, you mentioned uh, Roy Budd as well, because the previous Ray Harryhausen film was Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. And uh, that That's was right. Roy I Budd. played on that. I, I played on that. I played on that movie. Yeah, oh. I, I, I recorded the score of that. Yeah, we recorded that at CTS Wembley. Yeah, yeah that's why... I, that's why it, it, because I associate um, that Sinbad one um, with Roy Budd, because uh, I remember that very, very clearly. And of course, there was lots of fantastic special effects in that movie. And we were staggered, because in those days, we used to go to the studio and sit in the orchestra. And in those days, they used to actually um, project the film, or you could see the film at the back of the um, at the back of the studio. So we saw these amazing special effects. We we were we were quite gobsmacked with all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but so, these days you don't tend to see the movie; you just hear you know hear the sound if you've got something. So, but anyway, I mean, I, what happened? I can. This is. I mean, this would interest, I suppose, your listeners. Was and the reason why I remember it so well was it's the only time in my career, which is sadly over now, but it was the only time I ever went to Pinewood Studios. So you you remember something like that. And did you see the uh, the film? And during the scoring session, was it being projected? No, no, no. Uh, well, I'll tell you, it was very unusual because I've never actually um, uh, been involved in anything quite like this. It was the only time I was ever... What happens, right, so I drove, I lived in Kingston, and I drove to Pinewood, and I I went to a tiny dubbing studio. It wasn't very big at all. Um, and they had the movie there, and this is this is really the chronology of of what happened. And I I had just been told to take you know a good selection of these special sounding flutes of mine, which you know from all over the world. And I got there back, and I went into this room. I don't know who was there. I think it was just a couple of sound guys. 
They've been somebody else from the movie. But I remember, I remember that the remake. You know, they said, they said, look, we've got this problem. We've got this film. We've got this ca- character, and it's an owl. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a mechanical owl, and it flies around and things. And we just wondered whether you've got any sort of unusual sound that people wouldn't have heard. You know, that we could use. And the funny thing was, they said, have you got anything that sounds like an owl? <laughs> Which is a funny thing to ask anybody, if you think about it. Yes. And I said, and I said to them, well, I've got something that sounds like a boiling kettle. And they just fell about laughing because the week before, I'd just done the Tetley tea bag commercial which I'd done on a on a on a tin whistle. Bum 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 and at the end I made it sound like a whistle a, a, a kettle boiling like that. But I got out now I have here in my hand an ocarina. It's not actually the one that I used on the film, okay? But it will give you some idea because what I did was I said, look, this is this sounds a little bit like an owl in that it's a, quite a hooty sort of sound. I said, but I can, with a certain imagination, make it sound like speech. And, and their eyes popped out of their heads. <laughs> so I'm just going to put, put my phone down just for a second and just play you a little bit. And, and then you'll get some idea of, of how it got on there. Okay. But you see, this is a bit hooty, you see. So I said, well, look, I could do speech and sort of go. And that's, that's how it went. So they, they, they were just over the moon. And so I said, I said, well, just explain to me what's happening. And they, they gave me some idea of what was going on in the story. And so I just watched, watched the, um, the film, okay? So what, what Bubo was doing. And I just uh, made up this sort of um, imaginary conversation. And I remember the bit where it flies around the, the witches. I remember Flora Robson being on there. And, uh, and he sort of pokes fun at them. And I went, you try to do a sort of poke fun thing. And then they took uh, what I'd recorded and they did a little bit of uh, tweaking with the sound, you know, to make it sound a little bit uh, more, um, I suppose, for want of a better word, unidentifiable. I suppose more mechanical, <laughs> I guess. yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the essential thing was that they they wanted they wanted um, an individual sound for something which was, when you think about it, you know, quite strange for the story in that it was you know ancient Greece and whatever you know, and yet there here was this sort of mechanical thing that could do it. So they wanted a, you know a special. I wasn't there very long. I doubt whether, certainly less than an hour. And who was it, Adrian, you were dealing were, with? Was it was it with Lawrence Rosenthal? Who were you working with when you say they wanted this? Was it was it Ray Harryhausen or Lawrence Rosenthal or Charles Schneer? Oh no, they were just. Uh, they. I think that this was all post production. Oh. I think this was just 
um, I think um, they were, uh, it was just the sound guys. There wasn't anybody like a director there. Um, you know, I've worked with many, um, you know, big time directors and, and big time composers over my career. You know, when I was working, you know, people like Maurice Jarre and uh, Jerry Goldsmith and people like that on a one-to-one basis, but it wasn't anything like that. And certainly um, Larry uh, Rosenthal, he wasn't there. Um, it was just, it was just two ordinary guys like um, technicians in the, so I don't know who had made the, uh, you know, the decision or whatever. It was actually, when you think about it, I suppose that was a little bit odd. So you know, you'd think you'd think there would have been, you know, somebody from the, you know, a di- the director or. But I suppose it was a very small part of the film when you think about it. I mean, it's what is it? It's it's not more than ten minutes or even less, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Adrian. For for something you said it was only one day and it was a small amount of input, it's had a very big impact on the lasting legacy because, of course, this many years, 40 years later, I'm speaking to you about it. And when the film comes on and people talk about Bubo the Owl, does it give you a sense of satisfaction to know you gave Bubo his voice? Oh, absolutely. Oh, totally, totally. I mean... As I've said to you, you know, at that particular time, we're talking about 40 years. Uh, when when was that movie? 79, was it? Um, it was made 79, 80, came out 81. Ah, yeah, it, it was made. Well, I, it would have been very much when I was at my busiest period. I mean, 40, 40 years ago this week, I had a solo flute album that was in the top 20 albums so i was uh, i was sort of very much uh, even when i appeared on tv interviews and various things so i suppose it was you know at uh, the time when i was you know beginning the you know the upward upward road uh, to success as it were um but it was such an unusual uh, engagement that, that you remember those because uh, most of most of my career was just going to studios, sitting in an orchestra, playing what was put in front of you. You know, sometimes it was light music, sometimes it was classical. You know, uh, lots of film scores. I recorded almost two thousand film scores with various people, um, and. Um, it's it, it's the unusual jobs like like that, um, which actually stick in your stick in your memory, and particularly as it was such a successful film. It was, yeah. and you know, just to have contributed just a tiny bit um, to that is is extremely satisfying. So I'm actually quite pleased that I'm able to share with you. Um, how it came about and I rather suspect that as a result of the information you've given me that it was probably Larry Rosenthal who who who, who, who probably said to somebody oh I know the guy that's going to have the sound that you want because I'd, I'd just done that um, film meetings with remarkable men and um, and and that was just full of all that kind of thing. And I I, I took you know 
couple of hundred of instruments to Denham Studios there, and I was playing all these different sounds for him. So he 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 probably he probably said, "Oh, this is the guy that's maybe be able to do something." But it was really interesting for me because the ocarina was absolutely the right sound because it's got that sort of hooty sound to it. And if they probably asked for anything else, I probably wouldn't have been able to provide it. (laughs) So, Adrian, can I ask, did you ever get to meet Ray Harryhausen himself at any stage? No, 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 no. No, I think that those, I think um, the people that are, sort of deal with those technical and very, in his case, very technical sides. I think they're, you know, they're sort of away in different parts. I mean, what's the, what's the film, what's the film made at Pinewood, was it? Yes, so, so all the principal photography and, and most of the post-production was done at Pinewood and Ray did the animations uh, there as well. Yeah, well, in that case, um, yeah, well, as I say, it was the only time that I ever went there. Um, Largely because um, Pinewood didn't have a music stage. Um, Shepperton had one um, uh, uh, all through the 50s and things, but I only actually ever went to Shepperton half a dozen times before that closed down. Most of the music for films in those days was recorded at Denham, which doesn't exist anymore. Well, I mean, you know, as a sound stage, but um, we used to go to Denham. So when I actually got the call and said to go to Pinewood, I, I was really quite interested in that because I'd never worked there and I never worked, ever worked there again. And it was only a really small um, studio, uh, just a post-production sort of sound studio, very small. I mean, really very, very small. I mean, there were two guys, I think, and me. Um, and one was one just one was dealing with the um, the vision, and one was dealing with the sound, or you know, recording, you know, checking the levels and things when I played things. And I think that they that that afterwards they said, oh well, we can tweak this a little bit, make it sound a little bit more. Um, uh, mechanical or, or like sort of well, in, they didn't. I don't think they would have said electronic, but you know what I mean. Of course, yeah. They didn't want it to. They, yeah, they didn't want it to sound like an ocarina. Like no, they, they wanted something that, 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 that would fit the rather imaginative um, uh, use of this <laughs> mechanical. And of course, you know that bubo is Greek for owl. Yes. Did you know that? Yes. No, I knew that. Oh, yes. you did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you, know, you knew that. Well, I, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people said oh, it was a strange name, and 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 I, 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 at the time, I think I looked it up and discovered that it's actually the Greek word for uh, for hours. <laughs> I guess it makes sense if they were doing the editing, the track laying, and the uh, sound uh, sort of mix at Pinewood. It would make sense. You were probably in a looping studio then, where people were doing dialogue looping. Um, so it makes sense because Bubo's voice effectively you gave Bubo his voice so it would be appropriate for you to be in a sound booth to give it the right perspective as well I suppose if actors are in doing voicing they want your instrument playing to have the same perspective as uh, as the actors who are doing their voice looping yeah I'm not too, I'm not I'm not too au fait with how they do these sort of things because generally speaking you know what happened you know, during my career and that was that you know, I would only actually just get there and and, 
play whatever it was they wanted, you know, for mm. whatever particular situation. And then I put, put the instruments back in the bag and get in the car and go home. You know, I mean, what happened after afterwards, you know, and who actually dealt with it? You know? I mean, I had done a few things like this, but nothing quite as unusual as this. Um, you know, obviously, I'd, I'd, I'd played lots of instruments. I mean, I did all of those, all of that, um, all of that ethnic flute stuff on the um, Zeffirelli Jesus of Nazareth uh, with Maurice Jarre. You know, and he just used to stop the orchestra and 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 and, and indicate me to improvise something on one of the one of these different flutes. But the, the ocarina is, is is not an instrument that I used very much. Um, although recent, not so long ago, some years ago, I used it on a on a on a quite a successful track with uh, Katie Mellower called Nine Million Bicycles," and and there's there's ocarina in that because Mike Bat, you know, famous for the bombles and that, I've I've used ocarina on some of his films. I mean, I don't know. It, it just might be interesting to people that listen to your podcast, you know, how these things sort of come about. I know you're specifically involved with the things that uh, Ray Harryhausen did. But, um, you know, the work and life of, uh, of a session musician, uh, generally speaking, it, people find interesting. <laughs> I do. I'm fascinated. I'm a very, very big film score fan. I have lots of film soundtracks in my collection. Something I can tell you, Adrian... Um, the, the Harryhausen Foundation kept so many items. There's over 50,000 items in the Foundation's collection. And we, we came across something rather unusual. And it was a small cassette. It's about, uh, I think it's about 15 minutes in length of uh, test recordings that John Barry made as a demo for Ray Harryhausen in 1979. We have the only copy of that. And we're going to be playing some of that in this very special episode. Oh, now that would be very interesting. So, what happened? Do 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 you know um, um, how it was that he didn't get it, or was he just busy? Or I think I it, mean, yeah, it was a combination of he was very busy at that time because this was around the time of uh, the Black Hole for Walt Disney and other films for John Barry. But actually, I think the real reason was that when he submitted the demo reel, Ray Harryhausen and the film's producer Charles Schneer decided that um, it wasn't quite right. And that's not the first time that's happened to well-known composers like Jerry Goldsmith and Alex North and John Barry. They've all had scores thrown out, as it's called. That sounds very rude, doesn't it? Thrown out. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I know a little bit about this because my son, James, uh, James Seymour, but he's a film composer and uh, he's spent, you know, long, long times doing... I mean, he did one Disney, one real recently and it got right up to the thing and then they just throw it up and something i mean i remember many years ago i yeah i i, I, I sat in and recorded the film uh, for the um, watership down you remember that that film yes and, and 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 i said to the composer who i knew very well i said i said this is the third Composers actually complete the whole score all 
ready to go into the studio and sometimes have it recorded in the studio and then somebody decides you know usually a non-musician and then somebody else somebody else gets to do it but you're talking about a period um just to mention those names i mean you're mentioning all people that i worked with and you know we had so many brilliant film composers at that, at that time. You know, they, they were, uh, God, I mean, it was, they were the golden years, really, of my career, really, working with people like John Barry and Michel Jarre and, uh, uh, um, and um, uh, um, Jerry Goldsmith. He used to come and every, t- every single score from Jerry Goldsmith was completely different from the previous one. He was so... You know, so, uh, but there you go. I mean, a little bit of ocarina was not very much, but I'm I'm satisfied that it, uh, you know, that it, uh, uh, that it's remembered. <laughs> and and, in, and indeed, I might say, John, that, 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 that you 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 asked me to just talk a little bit about it. Well, we're delighted to have you on the Ray Harryhausen podcast, and, and I know our listeners will be thrilled to hear the man who gave Bubo his voice. So, Adrian Brett, thank you very much. Too heavy for the dead brats, eh? How do you know that? He told me. Told you? His name is Bubo. Do you understand all those clicks and wheezes? Perfectly clear to me. It's another gift from the gods. Like the sword in a helmet. So that that was great hearing from Adrian, and uh, what a treat listening to the real Bubo the Owl. Sort of forty years later, Bubo the Owl, the actual instrument that was used to to create his dialogue and sound effects. And uh, this is, uh, I suppose, that interview is uh, again one of one of the wonders of social media because it was Adrian's daughter Emilia who got in touch with us. She uh, commented on one of our Facebook posts, one of our ever popular images of Bubo the Owl, uh, she happened to mention in the comments section that her father had created the uh, the dialogue for Bubo. So really wonderful to hear from Adrian there. And uh, yes, what, what a unique insight into, into a, a very special memory of Clash of the Titans. Well, we're talking about the difference in tone to the John Barry demo that we've been listening to. And I think there's something very interesting to, to comment on. Uh, when, when Rosenthal was looking back on his work with Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer, he said that when he first spoke to them, they had actually created a, a temp track that they'd, they'd been working with as a, a sort of temporary soundtrack template while, while Ray was animating and while they were putting the film together. And this uh, almost exclusively came from Richard Strauss's Ein Heldenleben, which is obviously a classic piece of heroic music. It, it translates from German into English as A Hero's Life. And I think it'd be very interesting to, to have a listen to that now because... Very similar to the eventual score for Clash of the Titans in terms of its um, in terms of the tone and its energy, and it's it's really interesting to think about what Charles Schneer and Ray Harryhausen were intended, what their ideal eventual sound would be, and uh, you could quite imagine Ray animating to this during the the grueling sixteen months of model animation that he undertook for uh, for Clash of the Titans in uh, in sort of the the late seventies and early nineteen eighties.
that's incredible. And of course, it's, it's quite common for filmmakers to use a temp track to help them cut the film together and to give it some momentum. But often what can happen is that filmmakers can become so locked in to the temp track that sometimes a temp track will actually survive the original score. And perhaps the most telling and obvious example of this was when Alex North went along to a film that he scored in the late 1960s for the big premiere, only to find that the score he'd created for 2001 for Stanley Kubrick had been completely thrown out. And the the temp tracks that uh, Mr Kubrick had used from a variety of different composers, from the Blue Danube, etc. And also, thus spoke Zarathustra, um, weren't meant to be in the final film. And there is a full score composed by Alex North that um, you can now get on CD, actually. And it is a very different look and feel. Um, so there is a danger, isn't there, Connor, that uh, if you get too locked into a temp track, you can never find your composer able to reach those heights. But I certainly think Lawrence Rosenthal produced something that was even better. Yes, that's right. And I suppose no uh, creative person wants to be told uh, told what to do in terms of we want you to create a soundtrack in this style. And uh, I suppose he may w- may well have been reluctant at first to um, to create something that sounded just like Richard Strauss. But I think he used that as a launch pad and created something that was every bit as heroic and you know as as uh, fantastical as as Ray and Charles had hoped. So so that that's I mean it's very interesting behind the scenes and. As a, as a relative sort of a layman in terms of um, how films are made and how scores are put together, I was I was shocked to to hear how um, common it is for scores to be rejected. It seems to me like such a huge process to to put an orchestra together, to to hire a composer, to put this uh, to put all of this music together, only for it to be rejected at some later stage. Um, yes, very surprised to hear about that story about Alex North and about a few of uh, John Barry's later scores that again were were never used. Um, it just seems like what a lot of work. But I suppose that's the, the nature of the film industry. It can be ruthless at times. Look, it's happened to Jerry Goldsmith on Alien Nation. It happened to John Barry in the 80s on a uh, Eddie Murphy film called The Golden Child. And a full, beautiful orchestral score was created for that film. And uh, it was thrown out. It's, it's a terrible, and it sounds really rude, as I mentioned to Adrian, a rude way of just describing a, a significant artistic contribution. But thrown out score it's happened to all of the big composers they certainly get paid for their work but it means that um in a sense you know they've not been appreciated but more often than not what happens is you'll go to a preview of the picture it doesn't work one of the few things you can change is the edits so you can make things shorter and and tighter so it moves along (laughs) at a greater pace and the music is something you can change you can't really change the story that much or the leading actor at all so one of the last final tweaks you can do is the music. But I think if you're throwing out a score because the film's not working, then really, you know, you're on a hiding to nothing. Um, the score that replaced John Barry on The Golden Child was certainly very good, workman-like, had more of a contemporary look and feel, if you like, and using a lot more synthesised drums. But um, I much prefer the John Barry, and you can, you can get that now on the, I think it's on the Entrada label. But going back to Lawrence Rosenthal, he was quite an unconventional choice because he'd done mostly television drama, historical drama, contemporary drama, but he wasn't from that same genre that, uh, you know, Bernard Herrmann, who'd scored for Jason and the Argonauts and Gulliver 
and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. So he wasn't from the fantasy era, or even Mikos Rocha. So if we think about the genre pieces that he was doing, take a listen to this, 1977's main title for The Island of Dr Moreau. So echoes there, Connor, of what was to come, I think, for Clash of the Titans. It was a smaller orchestra, and of course this was a fantasy based on an island where animal experiments had crossed over with humans, starring uh, the brilliant Michael York, who I love dearly in Logan's Run. Um, he, uh, a very underrated British actor, but um, an interesting piece. 
Excellent. Yeah, no, that I think there's there's some hints there. As you mentioned, uh, a lot of Lawrence Rosenthal's previous work had been more more sort of dramas and uh, sort of adult, I suppose, mature films. It seems like he really jumped at the opportunity to create this luscious, uh, lavish fantasy score for uh, Clash of the Titans, and he really seems to have thrown himself into it. So, so echoes of what was to come with these uh, earlier scores from the 1970s. But this was, a, I suppose, a, a different kettle of fish altogether, and he seems to have approached it with, with real enthusiasm. The fact that he got to work with the London Symphony Orchestra, I suppose, was a icing on the cake, a real, uh, a real treat for, for a composer of his stature. Definitely, and he ended up in 1977 working on the TV series of Logan's Run. But it was a shame that some of the films he did do really landed quite flat. Um, so in 1979, so right on the cusp of, uh, of, as it were, working on Clash of the Titans, although there was a few scores in between, he worked on a film which divides a lot of fans. It's, it's, it's an Armageddon-style production with Sean Connery and Natalie Wood. Um, the Earth is going to be destroyed by, um, by a giant rock falling from the, uh, from the stars. The film was Meteor, controversial because many people don't like it i think the score for meteor is superb there's a there's a fine cd version of it available and let's have a listen because i think this is probably um an interesting departure for Lawrence rosenthal and he used some electronic scoring techniques here as well let's have a listen
So not a film there that many people have seen, Connor. They might know of it. I'm not sure if you've seen it yourself. Have you, with Sean Connery? No, I've not. It sounds like it came out uh, so some 20 or 30 years too early because, of course, I grew up in the 90s where all of these meteor films uh, around the turn of the millennium, uh, films like Deep Impact and Armageddon, started to arrive. So I'm sure I would enjoy it because I, I do like uh, I do like a good apocalypse movie with uh, with uh, a meteor strike. Uh, so, so it's one to check out, but definitely... Very interesting music there, and uh, worth worth listening to to get a little context for uh, Rosenthal's earlier work. Um, we're going to hear a quick clip now of of Ray chatting about the score for Clash of the Titans. Oh yes, music! I think he did a marvelous job on this film, scoring it. It's a different, entirely different than Bernard Herrmann or. Mickless Rocha would do. We went through several people Including to score John the Williams. film originally, yeah. even John Williams. But this is not the type of picture that John Williams would score, I don't think. He bowed out. Uh, I think he suggested Rosenthal. It's an excellent score, I think, for this type of picture. So now back to Clash of the Titans, and the next uh, tra- track I've chosen is Zeus's Judgment chosen this because it's quite choral it's quite unusual and it doesn't follow the pattern that big film composers who do brassy scores talking about you John Barry might have used uh, for this sequence so let's have a listen That wouldn't be out of place, Connor, would it? In a, in a sort of a horror film from the same period. So it, it, it sends the chills now, doesn't it? It's that choral work. Yeah, it's very subtle, and there are there are a few pieces like that on the on the overall soundtrack. Particularly if you listen to um, the Entrada release, the two CDs, which which were released uh, some years ago via Entrada Records. This is a, this is a release of the full soundtrack uh, over two CDs alongside outtakes and bonus versions of some of the tracks. So there's some. 100 plus minutes of music on there and it really lets you appreciate the choral elements as, as you mentioned which I suppose when you're watching the film you maybe don't pick up on it's a little more subtle but there are as I say there's a few tracks like that on on the disc and it really ha- helps to add 
almost subliminally to the atmosphere for for the gods in Clash of the Titans, for this pantheon of, of Greek gods that are portrayed in the film. Next up is Magic Weapons, and we've often used this track ourselves, haven't we, Connor, when we've put together a montage, because um, I think it best captures the sort of the magic, the pace and the feel of a Ray Harryhausen film. Yes, it's like a little ident for for a lot of the uh, the video or social media uh, material that that we've put out. It just, as you say, within the space of sixty seconds or so, it really captures the magic in a in a short period of time of Ray's movies, and it's instantly evocative of 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 the kind of the, the nostalgia and the wonder of of Ray's films. Now the next track that I've chosen is um, it's called Invisible slash Jopper and we're going to go straight to the Jopper sequence and it's the town or the city in which we find um, Andromeda, the beautiful Andromeda has been cursed but it's a very ethnic sound and again very different to what other composers might have chosen to have done because often big composers tend to have a very big footprint on the film and they can and I'm not saying this about John Barry but some big composers can say that's what I've done there you go. And there isn't much wriggle room. There might be something they can do in terms of pacing or in terms of um, of editing. But in terms of style and bringing, as Adrian Brett talked about earlier, an ethnic flute feel, um, just have a listen to this. I think this is an incredibly effective, effective piece. Interestingly, films can often feel aged by their scores, you know, in a way that's, you know, respectful as well. If you were to get the Max Steiner score for King Kong and have listened to it, you would certainly recognise it as being from that era. But um, I think what Lawrence has done here, Lawrence Rosenthal, and uh, he is alive still, isn't he? He's in his 90s, Connor. We tried to get hold of him for this podcast, but to no avail. What he's done here is something which I think 
exists in its own time frame. So I don't think it's really aged at all. Yes, I suppose it's what what you kind of look for, for from race films is that this kind of timeless, almost out of time, almost in a in a different world altogether. These these fantasy scores, which you can't really age by by decade, and it, it's not particularly uh, reminiscent of of trends of the era. Is that a mythological timeless feel? And yes, I think that's what um, Lawrence Rosenthal put together. He's put he's put this there, uh, this very classic sounding score. And that particular piece, Joppa, is a, a Near Eastern flavour, is exotic sounding. It's a, it's a part of the film which I think where, where Ray was really keen to infuse some of his fine art influences because if you look in that part of the film as well, you'll see that the matte painting, which is very reminiscent of uh, the painting Jupiter Pluvius, which Ray, of course, had up in his living room. If you, if you look on our Vimeo page and our Facebook page, you'll see a little video about how much that painting uh, influenced Ray. And uh, yes, the, the soundtrack to the Joppa sequence in Clash of the Titans is another merging of, of different types of classic influence on, on uh, different elements of the film. Now, when we come up to, if you like, one of the key themes of the film, it has to be Pegasus. And uh, Ray wrote himself in An Animated Life that uh, what Lawrence Rosenthal did here, and I'm quoting Ray, highlighted exactly what I had in mind when animating and reflecting the essence of the struggle and the ultimate conquest of the beast. Um, So without Pegasus, you don't really have Clash of the Titans. I know he was one of the most complex sequences to complete, but I think the music helps unify, doesn't it, Connor, the... um, the idea of the uh, the rather complex animations involved, and the fact that it's quite difficult to portray a character in in a, in a fairly neutral um, piece like uh, like Pegasus, neutral character like Pegasus. Um, but let's ha- let's have a listen to that uh, that flying sequence. <laughs>
That reminds me of the flying sequence in Superman the movie. Although the themes are very different, it's still the same sort of uh, stirring motifs, isn't it, Connor? Yeah, that kind of soaring feel, that kind of the, the, um, the kind of sound that gets your heart pumping. And I think there's a, there's a lot of that in, in Clash of the Titans, as well as the more sinister themes for the, the creatures. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to get onto a couple of those. There are also a couple of Ray Harryhausen creations who are more or less protagonists, or you know, they're they're sympathetic. There's there's Pegasus and there's Bubu the Owl, and they need stirring motifs because they're 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 on the side of the good guys. And uh, again, it's another iconic um, piece of music that really reflects the themes of the film. Now, this hadn't been available on CD for a long, 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 long time. It was originally available as a vinyl, which I'd bought from Fifty Eight Dean Street back in the uh, in the sort of the late nineteen eighties. And it came out very briefly then as a CD. Um, I think it was only a handful of the tracks were on the CD. But now it's got this beautiful, as you say, two CD score with um, extras on it as well. So it has some alternative takes and the percussion drums that were used as part of the execution sequence. So all of those separate audio musical elements are now here for you to uh, to pour over from the good folks at Entrada. Now I'm saying this, it may well very well have sold out because it's um, it was released a couple of years ago now, I think in 2010, and it was limited to 3,000 copies. So it may not be available anymore, but um, the good folk at Entrada often share with us um, news of new releases, and we like to share with you when they've remastered effectively some of these um, brilliant old scores. Now the original elements for this would have been in very good condition because most of the or all of the MGM archive is now with the good folks down at Warner Brothers who look after things very very well and it's it's nice isn't it Connor to know that um, these parts of the foundation which we don't have to be responsible for are being looked after. Yes, absolutely. I think um, looking back, and we're, we're so spoiled these days with uh, these lavish CD releases and, uh, in fact, double vinyl releases as well through Entrada Records and other labels of that nature. Because I, I, I was looking at the um, the CD release and the LP, the originals from from the nineteen eighties, which is the one you would have purchased, John. And there's a they obviously they're the highlights of the score it's the kind of the greatest hits of clash of the titans but but that cd and that vinyl was uh, was 38 minutes long so if you compare that to the uh, the double cd released by entrada there's more than an hour of additional music which has now been made available which i suppose was impossible to get your hands on before so we're we're really quite spoiled in terms of being able to delve into the music and all of these additional parts and uh, as with all entrada releases as well there's a uh, very extensive liner notes which uh, which have been you know which has been fantastic and really fascinating to to read over uh, as part of our research for this episode interestingly though unlike most of Ray's other films and um, the original 2-inch 24 track scoring session masters um, still exist and they were in the Warner Brothers vault um, they would have been the magnetic masters and 2 inch of magnetic tape would give you a very wide band um, to, to pick up um, a lot more information so what they've done here is a, is a beautiful remaster using latest technology to remove as much tape hiss as there may have been but it would have been a, a very decent latitude across 2 inches of, of magnetic tape to have, um, to have captured everything really um, so how wonderful to have this here and as uh, Connor was saying if you can track this down great and if you can't you're going to be listening to more of it as we now listen to The Arrival of Bubo
There is something of the Bubo theme, Connor, that reminds me of Christmas. And even though there's no Christmas bells in there, I think because Bubo himself kind of looks like a Christmas ornament. And I think there are fans who um, were speaking to, to uh, Marshall Julius, weren't we, in the, one of the more recent podcasts. And he described Bubo as the Jar Jar Binks of the Harryhausen world. Well, if only I could have reached across the table. Um, I was I was surprised, but um, some people do think that. So I'm not one of them. I'm a big fan of, of Bubo the Owl. And he wasn't um, a reaction to R2-D2, as many people seem to think, because... His original inclusion was in an early draft of a treatment in the very early 1970s before Star Wars had come along. But uh, how do you feel about Bubo, Connor? Well, it's funny that what you mentioned there because there are, you know, there's no sense in denying it. There are some people who just do not like Bubo the Owl as a concept or as a character. But as a ball to that, there are so many thousands of people who absolutely love Bubo. And I'm not uh, exaggerating when I say that whenever we post an image of Bubo or, or, or share some uh, some Bubo-related information on our social media, there's, there's a, a, a massive response. And uh, we've definitely had more tattoos, fans who have had tattoos of Bubo sent through to our Facebook page than any other of, uh, of race creatures. So... It's fine if, if, if that's uh, Marshall Julius's opinion on uh, on on Bubo the Owl, but uh, I think that should be balanced by the fact that he's a beloved character by you know so many of Ray's fans, and I I feel like uh, Bubo the Owl has a kind of a different kind of um, legacy to to many of Ray's other creatures because they're in in the pop culture sphere. I feel like Bubo is remembered by people who maybe haven't seen a lot of Ray's films or maybe don't know that Bubu was a Ray Harryhausen creation. They they just remember they remember seeing Clash of the Titans and, and he's a different type of character. He's one that stood out to them and uh, we're all big fans of Bubu here at the Foundation and uh, I think as you say it's a he's a he's a character that has a Christmassy feel and I know a lot of people watch Clash of the Titans uh, over the Christmas period and it it's often um played on television here in the UK on Christmas Eve I've noticed or, or around that time anyway so it's a it's a film I suppose which is a a festive classic for a lot of people and um, and Bubo sets the right tone for that I think you're absolutely right and you know when Clash of the Titans came out the film had its detractors as well not just because of Bubo but because they felt that Perhaps this form of dynamation, stop-motion interaction was uh, was having its day. But um, look, the film critic Roger Ebert, he endorsed the film and uh, he, um, he even suggested that the music was one of the key points for it. The Los Angeles Times praised the full-bodied score. The Washington Post observed that Titan stirs satisfying romantic and heroic feelings every so often um, with the aid of Lawrence Rodenthal's rich, expansive score. So, you know, I think it adds a lot. And to those scenes that need the bombast because they're a fight sequence, or the playful sequence such as Bubo the Owl, or the heroic Pegasus, I think there's no theme that works as well in conjunction with Ray Harryhausen's beautiful animation and perhaps one of the best scored moments in the entire Harryhausen pantheon as this next track, which needs no introduction. Let's have a listen.
now, for those of you who didn't recognise that, what you're doing listening to this podcast. Um, that, of course, was the Medusa sequence in the temple, Medusa's temple. So if you're scratching your head saying, oh, I know that scene, the music in itself almost identifies the scene. And that's why I didn't want to, to give the full intro. But uh, how, how would you rate that, Connor, as my my preferred suggestion as the greatest scored sequence of all of Ray's films? No, I, th- I think that you are probably quite right there. I, I, th- I think it was Ray's good friend, uh, Ray Bradbury, who said that the um, the Medusa sequence was this culmination of all of Ray's decades of expertise with stop motion and his use of, of light and shadow and atmosphere. And the score just reflects that perfectly. Um, you know, there's this eerie sounding electronic instrument. There's a you know, very clever use of, of silence and... Uh, it builds up this fantastic, as I said, that atmosphere is, I suppose, the only word you can use for it. Very tense, very on edge, very different to the music of uh, of Bubo or Pegasus, of course, as it should be. Um, and yes, I suppose other f- filmmakers may have been tempted to have uh, have that sequence in silence, but I think that Lawrence Rosenthal put something very, very special together, and it just it just accentuates the scene perfectly. And if on paper someone said, "Well, I'm going to use a harpsichord here," you'd be like, "Beg pardon, you're going to what?" harpsichord um, and yet it works doesn't it it really makes the hair stand up on the neck um, it's, it's an incredible combination of cutting of scoring and oh. of as you say Connor uh, quite right of atmosphere so I think had uh, Ray gone on to make you know Force of the Trojans it's very likely Lawrence Rosenthal would have would have joined them for that journey um, Ray was a big fan of film music and he was always very conscious of how very important it was that it was the it was the final element that would bring everything I won't say alive because they're already alive, but bring everything together. It really was a, a collegiate sort of moment. Um, Lawrence Rosenthal, of course, continued to work through the eighties, nineties, and worked on the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. So returning to television more often than not, where he was in great demand. So yes, John, as you say, Lawrence Rosenthal, if, if you're going to do one big fantasy epic and create a soundtrack for that, then uh, you may as well do as good a job as uh, as he did on Clash of the Titans because it's still marvellous. Delving back into our archive and uh, and this demo cassette we have for John Barry's unused score, uh, I think it's, it'd be interesting to, to hear a few more samples uh, from this tape based on our, our discussion so far. Uh, track three on the cassette is named Andromeda and so let's have a listen this is obviously more of the uh, the theme for for Judy Bowker's character from the film that works really well I could see that with a full orchestra I can almost hear how that would be and uh, you know John Barry would certainly bring a certain status to the film I'm right in thinking there was a poster also created a a, a one sheet that um, had John Barry's name on as composer Connor isn't that right Yes, that's right. We have a we have a few copy few copies of that within our archive. So it was definitely uh, plans were afoot. 
to have John Barry as the official composer, and I know that that information was was released in a lot of the the kind of the the pre publicity advertising for the movie. Um, so I suppose there's a, a collector's item there if you own that poster and it's got John Barry's name on it. Then there's a a bit, a bit of early trivia. Uh, but but yes, I think you know we're listening to these tracks because we we've heard the the heroic theme, which would have been the main title from the film, and then here with tracks three, four, and five, there's a sort of shorter, punchier pieces, which give you an idea of what, what the dramatic sequences and the romantic sequences of the film may have sounded like under John Barry. So we have next uh, Perseus growing up. <laughs> lovely isn't it I mean it's it must have been difficult for Ray and Charles at the time to listen to the demo and think yes no what are we going to do um, I wonder if they both came to the decision quite quickly um, it is interesting when when you think about the score for King Kong which is a very pacey film and yet the score is quite laid back and the black hole now the black hole has some amazing sequences with the flying robots and the lasers going and the music seems to be from a different film in places it seems to be very laid back um, other than the, the final sequence where there's the big shootout amongst Maximilian and uh, Vincent and old Bob a lot of the film seems to be scored um, at, a, at, a, at a kind of an easy pace which I'm not sure if that made Ray and Charles quite nervous because when we look back at all of their films, the, the music needs to keep up with the action on screen. I mean, that's part of the job of the music is to is to support and maintain the drama and, and not to be doing its own thing. So I wonder if that's what they thought. Um, but you have a, yet another track, Connor, don't you? You have a, a fifth track up your sleeve from John Barry. Yes, that's right. This is uh, clearly... Uh, meant for one of the action sequences from the film because the track is simply entitled Scorpion. So, calling back to that that fantastic uh, piece of action where there's a where Perseus's crew are uh, attacked by uh, by three or four scorpions. Uh, again, this this is a little punchier. This is a little uh, more more lively than the other, than the other tracks we've heard. But I think it talks to your point that, that which we made earlier, which is when you have a big name like John Barry. I suppose maybe Ray and Charles were nervous about getting um, a John Barry score as opposed to something that was tailored to fit the, the ebb, ebb and flow of the film because yeah, my, my general perception of this soundtrack is that although it's fantastic, it is a little subdued compared to compared to the final score. So this is maybe where where where, where Ray was nervous and had, had a, a difficult decision to make. Uh, nevertheless, it's fantastic to, to listen to, to this demo. And here we have Scorpion. So just picture that famous Scorpion sequence from Clash of the Titans as, as you hear this sample.
Now, the funny thing about listening to that, with all the comments we made in this episode, is that in the original film, the, the sequence isn't scored. So there's sound effects, and it's one of the few Harryhausen, if you like, fight sequences with major creatures, where there is no score. So the sound effects play sort of writ large through most of that. There's a, the score comes in towards the end. And I think it works very well without music. And I'd be curious to know who set the, um, if you like, the shopping list from the screenplay or maybe from the edit that uh, John Barry would have seen, that he would have tried sampling, uh, creating demos for these sort of six different sequences. So two, I suggest, for Heroic were the kind of two runs at the main title. Andromeda is your love theme. Perseus is growing up is a kind of a transition music. And then Scorpion is a, is a typical sort of fight scene. So it kind of covers, doesn't it, Connor, all of the dramatic bases that the film would have had. But interesting that they decided in the end there wouldn't be music in that key scene. Yeah, that that's right. And I suppose that it does this showcase. What would you have as your main theme? What would you have for the love scenes? What would you have for for a battle or a, or a fight sequence? So it's covering all the bases in quite a, quite a short space of time. Uh, and yes, I suppose this is as as we've done quite often in two thousand and nineteen. It does make you ponder on what could have been. And you know, as I say, I certainly think that we um, we ended up with the, the correct choice, with the right score for Clash of the Titans. But you can't help but wonder how how the film might have been different in tone if uh, if John Barry had had uh, recorded a full sort of ninety to hundred minutes of of music for the nineteen eighty one film. Well, you know, it may well have been that. Um because it has happened it may well have been that then at that stage the score might have been thrown out and they'd gone elsewhere but uh, it, it much depends on um, on schedules and what studios have in terms of bookings look it happened recently on King Kong the Peter Jackson King Kong had a wonderful score by Howard Shaw apparently I've not heard it and the studio didn't like the film when they saw it um, with a test audience I assume and so James Newton Howard came in and at record speed put together um, a very good score for the uh, the 2005 King Kong. Howard Shaw is actually in the film conducting the orchestra in the orchestra pit in the final sequence when Kong is presented to everyone in New York. So, um, you know, the best intentions and, you know, the biggest filmmakers can't always get their own way when it comes to music. So there are different different scores out there for different films and maybe you'd like to contact us on the Facebook page and tell us which you think are the... Uh, the biggest crimes against film composers and some of the best switcheroos and scores that have been thrown out that deserve to be. But um, I think we're going to finish off now with the only way we can, with the Constellation's end title, with the dialogue from Zeus himself, Laurence Olivier. Perseus and Andromeda will be happy together. Have fine sons, Rule wisely. And to perpetuate the story of his courage, I command that from henceforth he will be set among the stars and constellations. He, Perseus, the lovely Andromeda, the noble Pegasus, and even the vain Cassiope. Let the stars be named after them forever. As long as man shall walk the earth and search the night sky in wonder, they will remember the courage of Perseus forever. Even if we, the gods, are abandoned or forgotten, the stars 
will never fade. Never. They will burn till the end of time. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2019. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.